there, Java junkies. It's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have an exciting announcement to share with you. On April 17th, Time for Coffee is going to hold its first in-person live event. That's right. We're inviting you to join us in the audience for free. And we've got all kinds of cool swag to give away to the first 25 Java junkies who show up. So make sure to get there early. We're calling it Time for Coffee's Caffeinated Career Mini Summit. And it'll take place at the University of Maryland at 7 p.m. on April 17th. And for those of you in the area, we hope you'll join us at Maryland's College Park campus. Just go to timeforcoffee.org to get more information. Now, let's get on with the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. Remember way back in 2014 when news reports surfaced alleging the North Korean government was hacking into Sony Pictures after it released the movie The Interview? And of course, there are new reports almost every week about the Russian government's attempts to interfere in the 2016 U.S. presidential election and its use of social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram to manipulate public opinion. Well, my next guest is a threat intelligence analyst at social media giant Facebook, where she and her colleagues are responsible for analyzing and assessing geopolitical risks and threats to Facebook's people, assets, and operations. But before I introduce you to Lauren Bose-Hayes, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we blast out bright and early Monday mornings with an overview of the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. Now, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Lauren Bose-Hayes, a threat intelligence analyst at Facebook. Most recently, Lauren and her team members were responsible for ensuring the integrity of elections research ahead of the 2018 midterm elections in the U.S. Prior to joining Facebook, Lauren worked for the Deloitte & Touche consulting firm, where she co-founded Deloitte's threat intelligence and analytics practice, designing the roadmap to develop this practice, including product offerings, an organizational chart, and operational processes. Lauren, Lauren, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your mug of tea and ready to go? I am. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. Oh, it is my pleasure. And Lauren, I want our listeners to know that obviously the kind of work that you're involved in is very sensitive. And so I may well be asking you questions that you are not at liberty to go into any kind of details about. But our goal here is to really paint some broad strokes and help our listeners better understand the industry and some of the jobs that are out there that might interest them. So what I would love to do is perhaps maybe start with a question about what cybersecurity really is and what people do in this industry. 
Absolutely. The cybersecurity industry has such an array of jobs that I'm going to speak specifically to the part of the industry I'm in, which is the threat intelligence industry. And I highlight that because the threat intelligence industry is really distinct from, let's say, penetration testing or security auditing and or vulnerability management. So the way each of these roles might differ, for example, is that if you are doing compliance work, for example, you might be helping a company make sure that they have all of their documentation, all of their processes, and all of their technical implementations up to the standard of different compliance frameworks. So within that alone, you have people who have skill sets in documentation. So really people who are better at writing and more interested in that topic, to process development, which requires more meetings and facilitation to the actual technical implementation of the tools. Now, in what I do, threat intelligence, threat intelligence is about understanding where cybersecurity threats emanate from. So in the news, if you ever hear somebody say, we believe that this country was responsible for the breach of that company, that is likely a forensics team doing that work. So actually looking at the breached company at a very technical level, understanding the malware that was used, understanding the vulnerabilities that were exploiting and coming to an assessment of how that attack happened. Where threat intelligence comes in is saying, okay, we know that this company in this industry was targeted by this other country. And now we see another company in that same industry, maybe in a completely different country, having been attacked in a similar way. And it's us connecting those dots to say, we think it might have been the same actor who was behind these. And now we can learn from those two attacks to understand how other companies in that same industry can be protected. Great. Thank you so much for that. So let's start with your current job. And as you said, you are a threat intelligence analyst within the strategic threat intelligence unit at Facebook. What do you actually do in this job, Lauren? Can you kind of break down your day-to-day responsibilities? Sure. So as Andrea alluded to, I'm going to speak in more generalities about my role. But in the threat intelligence field and in my current role, my current role is more of a research role. In previous roles I've had, I've been in a more managerial capacity, which really management in cybersecurity is, I assume, not much different than management in other types of organizations where you're working with people and managing projects. But in my current role, it's more research-oriented. So I have specific questions that I'm trying to answer, and I'm just looking through the data to try to figure out whether or not I can identify signals that might indicate that type of cybersecurity concern. And then if I find it, then really interpreting it and saying, what can we learn from this? What does it mean? And how do we respond? And making those decisions and either making them myself or teeing those decisions up for decision makers across the company who should be making that final decision and actioning. So do you spend most of your day, Lauren, sitting in front of the computer doing research? I do. I've specifically made a role for myself that also includes process development for our team, as well as working with cross-functional partners. Those are things I really enjoy. So it's important to me to balance the research with helping to build out the team processes and really make sure our team is maturing so that we can scale our efforts. So when you say you are working on process, Mm -hmm. can you spell that out a little bit more? Again, in generalities, what that means, what that looks like. Absolutely. So an example would be that in the cybersecurity field, there's a really 
robust open source intelligence community, which really means people who are taking signals that anybody with access to the internet could find. So that could be a blog post, for example, or information that's available through the news, anything of that nature, and really reading that, internalizing it, and trying to connect the dots across those multiple sources. So for any threat intelligence program, it's important to know, for example, what's being reported on in the news or what's being blogged about by security bloggers. And when you find that and you find something that says, okay, this is relevant to your company from a cybersecurity concern, you need to have a process to make sure you're identifying that, for example, and then also making sure that your analysts are reading that content and then acting on it and saying, okay, how does this apply to our specific company and our specific team? And that's something that needs to be a little more evident, robust process than just a casual, you know, you're reading the news in the morning and you say, oh, maybe I'll work on this today. You need something that's a little bit more routine and consistent to make sure that you are bringing in the open source intelligence that's available out there into your processes and into the research that we're doing. So does that involve how you would be pulling the information, whether it's bloggers or news sources or other websites, and then filing it or crunching the data into spreadsheets and then sharing it out among other team members? Sure. It could be as simple as making sure, let's say you were using Google News, for example. It could be as simple as making sure you have alerts set up to alert on certain words, which could be your company's name and a specific keyword, for example. But then aside from the technical side, I think in cybersecurity, it's really easy to overlook the the people that are required. There are a lot of technologies that can help us in this field. But at the end of the day, every single company needs analysts to do the work and As we've discussed, there are fewer analysts in this field that are needed, as you alluded to with the 0% unemployment rate. I mean, there are most teams are operating with fewer people than they really need to get the job done. And while I'm fortunate to have been on really robust teams with lots of people, even still, there's just a lot of work out there. And so a lot of that means saying, okay, now we've got all of these alerts. And we need to have people look at them. So how do we prioritize those to make sure we know we're looking at the most important thing? And then once we have prioritized something and have looked at it, how do we vet it to understand whether or not that article that was written is accurate or whether or not it is relevant to our organization? So it's really the mix of people, process, and technology that all come together to put you in a place where you can consistently say that you know that you're covering what your team needs to be. Great. Thank you for that. And for Java junkies who may be wondering about the 0% unemployment, I had said that in an introduction that I read to Lauren's Espresso Shots interview, which may or may not be releasing ahead of this interview, but you can check show notes to see if it's already out there. Otherwise, what we were talking about is that in this industry, in the cybersecurity industry, there is quite literally a 0% unemployment rate. So if you're looking for a career that has pretty darn good job security, this is probably one of the best ones out there right now. So Lauren, one of the many, many reasons I wanted to interview you is that you feel very strongly about myth busting. And first and foremost, you want to squash the myth that it requires a background in coding or programming to get into this field. In fact, in an article you wrote in 2018, you said the majority of people in this industry haven't been required to write a single line of code. How is that possible? 
It's a great question. And it's something that surprised me when I got into the industry. I got into this industry fully expecting that I was going to be years behind my colleagues who I anticipated would be these experienced computer scientists and data scientists. And I actually signed up for a class before even taking my first job because I was just so concerned that I was going to be so far behind everyone else. And I was astounded to learn that even if you graduated from a university with a degree in something like information systems, for example, or some other relevant degrees that can be common in this field, those don't mean computer science. And even if you majored in computer science and you are a programmer, you may never have taken a class on cybersecurity. And that was just astounding to me. So yes, it's important to me to highlight that understanding how the internet works and understanding how computers work and understanding how to secure a company. And as we were talking about in the last question, how to build processes and manage people. All of those things can be done without knowing how to write a single line of code. Now, if you're looking, depending on what part of the industry you're looking to go into, you may need to learn some programming. So for example, in my current role, we deal with really large data sets. And so it's really helpful to me to have learned some basic programming skills to be able to do that basic data analytics. However, in my previous roles and at many of the companies that I used to consult on, the way it's possible is that the security industry has lots of tools that are specific to the industry that even if you were a programmer, you would still have to learn how to use these specific tools. So an example to make it practical for your listeners is that incident response is a really exciting part of the cybersecurity industry. And that's basically working for a company and understanding when an employee clicks on a phishing link, for example. So they get an email to their corporate email and they click on that link and all of a sudden something bad starts to happen. You need to have a system as a company in place that alerts a cybersecurity analyst to say that that has occurred. Well, while those technologies are getting better, writing the rules that enable those tools to identify that bad behavior is tool specific often. So when your company decides what incident response related tooling they want to have, your team is likely to be trained by that company on how to customize that tool and how to make sure you implement it such that you get the appropriate alerts. And that's something that is training you're going to get on the job that's not going to be a traditional programming language and it's going to be tool specific. So it's just one example out of many you could choose in this industry of how any of us can do that who are willing and able to learn. What I loved in that blog post that you wrote, Lauren, is that you said that some of your colleagues in your previous job included a filmmaker, a journalist, an accountant, and a mechanical engineer. So if you don't need a background in computer programming or computer science, is there a particular kind of background that is useful or maybe even necessary to have? One of the common themes in this industry that I've found in my work, and I do believe this is specific to threat intelligence, but applies more broadly, is that there are a lot of veterans in this space. You know, the military has really robust cybersecurity training and has really been ahead of the private sector, I believe, in making that training available and really training people from entry-level positions all the way up to some of the most advanced and most technical roles that exist in this field. And so many people who went into the military, whether they 
were just selected for this service or had pre-existing skills that aligned them to this work end up at leaving the military with this incredibly valuable skill set that is applicable to so many different industries. So while I have never served in the military, I've worked with many veterans and it's just amazing how much the veteran community has contributed to this industry and continues to really be leaders in this field. So that's one thing that I would say is a common source for how people got into the field. Another is individuals who maybe had roles at their company that were not cybersecurity specific, but they were at a company that was too small to hire a cybersecurity specific person. And so they became that person. (laughs) And that's another common theme that I hear from coworkers as far as how they got into the field. Similarly, it could be that somebody went into a related field. Maybe you went to work for the government or you went to work for a tech company or you went to work for some company that was not a cybersecurity company, but had relevant information to this field. So as this field started to develop, people were able to apply what they know and what they've experienced to say, I can do that, or I have something to contribute on that front. And really, that I would say is at least 70% of my coworkers fall into one of those two categories, folks who either were in the military and received on the job training, or individuals who weren't at all, and just it was adjacent to what they were doing, and they decided to raise their hand and dive in. Oh, fantastic. Lauren, if someone thinks they might be interested in the field of cybersecurity, how do you recommend they break into it? And I should also mention that you want Java junkies to know that pretty much any industry that uses technology is in need of people who understand cybersecurity. So it's really a broad swath of industries. Yes. If you have always wanted to work in healthcare, but you're not a nurse or a doctor, or you've always wanted to work in the entertainment industry because you just love movies and you want to be close to that, but you yourself don't want to be an actor, there are cybersecurity roles that are the exact same type of job that are equally applicable in the healthcare industry as they are in the entertainment industry. And that's something that's really exciting about starting a career in this field is that your skill set is so portable. So as far as things that people can do to break in, I mean, this is certainly the the catch-22 I know that everyone feels when they're in high school or college is so many of these jobs look like they require four to six years. And here I am just with my degree in hand and I want to apply. And I really recommend doing either apprenticeships or internships in this field. So much of cybersecurity learning is done on the job that if you have the ability to do an internship during your time in school, I strongly recommend it. Similarly. I did not take this path, but I have many coworkers who started their careers in either IT type roles. So like at an IT help desk or in a call center, you can learn a lot that way. I mean, there are so many different types of paid work where you can learn the basics and then transport those to other types of cybersecurity roles. Another thing that I would highlight and that I like to say to anyone I know who really doesn't know how to get started is that in cybersecurity, there are a lot of industry specific certificates. And while many people will tell you that a certificate isn't enough to necessarily teach you everything you want to know or to demonstrate that you're truly an expert in something, it is something that shows that you're serious about wanting to be in this industry if it's not an industry that you're familiar with. So if you're someone who is just out of high school or out of college, or you're later in your career and you're really not sure how to pivot in, or if this would even be something you're interested in at all, there are a lot of different certificates that you can study for on your own. You can just buy a book or sign up for an online training class or watch some YouTube videos, and you can learn the basic material and get familiar with the field 
And then you can get a certificate and you can explain to someone, you know, I really don't know how to break into this field, but I've done the work. I've demonstrated that I'm really serious. And this is how I've demonstrated that is that I've gone out and I've taken this study on myself and I've gotten a certificate. And hey, these are the things I really liked about getting the certificate. These are the topics I wasn't that interested in. You know, how does that map to the work as it's manifest in your company? And I think that that's a really strong approach that anyone could take who's interested in breaking into the field. Oh, that is such great advice, Lauren. I'm curious for those apprenticeships and internships, is it as simple as just Googling internships or apprenticeships in cybersecurity? Are there certain websites that people can go to if they're interested in maybe a one-stop shop way of finding these jobs? This is something that is endlessly confusing (laughs) to anyone applying, and I'm glad that you asked, Andrea. An important thing to note is that the cybersecurity industry, as we've been discussing, has so many roles within it. So what's important to Google is to not necessarily Google cybersecurity internship, but is to Google one of the specific roles. Even if you don't know exactly which one you are most interested in, if you choose one, such as saying vulnerability management or security auditing or penetration testing or threat intelligence. There are so many different parts of this industry. But if you Google one and you start to click around and you start to see what types of companies are offering those internships and you start to get a sense for what the requirements are to apply and you look at the related jobs, many job websites will include the thing you looked for, but of course, then also related roles. Don't get discouraged if you happen to Google forensics internship. You know, that's one of the most technical roles in this field. If you Google that and you see the requirements are master's degree in computer science or forensics, that's not the only role that's out there, but it'll get you started in knowing at least what department that forensics team is housed within within the company to see what type of other related roles there are and to see what type of experience is needed even for that really technical role. So that's where I would start is really just poking around. Another challenge within cybersecurity is because it's a newer field, there's not always a very clear department that cybersecurity teams fall within. I've worked at companies where the cybersecurity team fell within the legal team and reported up to the head of the legal department of the company. I've worked in larger organizations where it's within the IT organization, worked in larger ones where it's within some sort of growth organization because cybersecurity is really important to the growth of many companies. So really, it's important to figure out what department cybersecurity type roles are in. And then once you find that, you can look at what other offerings are available. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lauren. Before we flash back to when you were an undergrad, I want to ask you about what it has been like as a young woman in the cybersecurity field. I really have no sense as to whether this is still a male-dominated industry or whether you feel that there's gender parity in terms of jobs and roles and what it's like for you? We need more women in cybersecurity. There are varied estimates of the percentage of women in the field. And so I don't claim that this is a perfectly accurate statistic, but I have seen estimates from as low as approximately 11% of the field are women up to the highest percentage I've ever seen is approximately 20. So without a doubt, women are underrepresented in this field. And there are many other minority groups that are also underrepresented in this field, such as African-Americans specifically. And the reason that I feel it's important to have more women in this field, there are multiple. 
One, when we look back, I do believe that cybersecurity roles, as they said, are only going to grow into the future. And so if we want to be positioning women to have leadership roles 10 or 20 years from now on issues that are really core to companies and in roles that are really high paying and impactful and can position somebody to take on a leadership role at so many different organizations. We need women in those roles now at lower levels so that people can gain that experience and work their way through the industry. There are a lot of different organizations trying to make a difference on this topic. But a thing that is challenging is that many of those are focused again on getting women into engineering. And that's also really important. But as we discussed, many cybersecurity roles are not engineering roles. And so often those programs might not help to bring women into cybersecurity. There are many conferences that are trying to be aware of the fact that often cybersecurity conferences are just these panels of all men. There are a lot of different conferences trying to make sure that there are more women and people of color represented in the speakers that are presented at conferences because conferences really are big in the cybersecurity community. People do love their conferences. And so that's something that I think will go a long way towards providing mentors in this space. And I know for me personally, I've had amazing male mentors at the companies I've worked for. Some of my biggest advocates who have opened doors for me have been men. And I will say that when I took my current job, something that was really exciting to me is that my current team when I applied was run by a woman who's really famous in the field. And that was really inspiring to me because there really aren't that many women who are at the higher ranks of this industry. So it's really critical to have more women come into the field. Okay. Well, hopefully this is a call to action for our young female Java junkies to explore this industry for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which there's clearly the need for you to get into it. So Lauren, let's flash back all the way to 2013 when you graduated from Georgetown University with a Bachelor of Science of the Foreign Service, where you were an international politics major. Did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated? I did not know exactly what I would do when I was in undergrad. I always knew that I was passionate about politics and social justice and that I wanted to be able to be in a career that for my entire life, I would know that I was making change that impacted people. That's really always been core to me. And I always thought that that would look like me working on political campaigns or in the government, something along those lines. So when I was an undergrad, you know, those were the types of internships I mostly did. I interned in the government. I volunteered on political campaigns, etc. And it was through a series of influential conversations with mentors that I started to think, how do I apply this interest to an actual job? And as I started to think that through, it wasn't until my senior year that I started to think about pursuing some roles in cybersecurity. And I actually made a commitment to myself when I decided to make this leap of faith into this industry that I had very little, if any, practical experience in before getting to work in it for the first time. And I said to myself, I'm going to do this for two years. And if I don't like it, I'll leave. And it was really freeing to go in with that approach of saying, I'm going to learn everything I can. I'm going to give this my best effort and I'm going to see what's out there. And what it allowed me to do is that my first role in this industry, I did not like. It was not for me. And it really enabled me to say, okay, I'm going to try this for a few months. I've realized this isn't what I'm passionate about. And it freed me up to feel comfortable to go to my manager and say, I respect the work you're all doing, but I don't think it's for me. And I really want to find something that does fit my interests better. And She said, okay, great. We're sad to lose you. We do need you to work three more months on this project. 
But for your next project, let's find something different. And I think I felt free and able to do that and really make that big switch even within the industry because I had set this goal for myself of I'm going to just be in a learning mode for two years and really try to find the right fit for me. And that switch when I left that project is when I found a threat intelligence project and has set me on this whole career in this industry that I really love. And so did all of this happen when you were at Deloitte? That did. Yep. My very first project in Deloitte was a compliance role. And there is an immense amount of learning you can do when you are on a compliance specific project. But for me, it wasn't exactly the role I was most excited about. And I really wanted to do something that had more of an international relations focus because that's what I'm passionate about. And I remember having this moment when I switched to my next project. I got to work on the breach response for a breach that had occurred at a big company. This breach was in the news every single day. It was impacting millions of Americans. I had family members who were having to enroll in identity protection services because their personal information and their credit card info had been compromised. And I got to show up and work on that project. And it was so exciting. And it was amazing to be around all these experts as somebody who was still learning and really just to learn from some of the best in the industry. I mean, it was an incredible opportunity. And all of that became possible because I had identified that the first place I started in the industry wasn't the best fit for me. And that's fine. And I have coworkers who are still working on that project I left years ago, they've built amazing careers in that space. And it's the right space for them. And that's amazing. And it was great that I was able to switch. And I remember having a moment on that first project, or sorry, on that second project, the one, the threat intelligence project, where I got to write a report on how the country behind the breach or how the actors behind the breach, who they had compromised before and what we could learn from that. And I remember sitting there and thinking, in college, I used to pay someone to write this exact same report and grade it. And now someone is paying me to do this exact same work. And I was just amazed by that. I was like, wow, I found this industry that I'm so excited about. And this is amazing. It was great. You know, what really struck me about that example, Lauren, is that you also were proactive in going to your supervisor and being honest about the fact that the whole first project just wasn't rocking your world. And I wonder if being at a big consultancy like Deloitte is a great way to kind of sample, almost like you're at an a la carte buffet, different offerings to try to figure out what really does get you excited. I really benefited from the ability to jump around from project to project in consulting. So I think the benefits of starting in a field like consulting are you get really broad exposure to a bunch of different types of projects. For me, as I started to specialize, that became a bit of a challenge because I knew I only wanted to work certain types of projects. And sometimes that's not possible in consulting because it depends on what projects your company has and how the timelines add up and, and what's highest priority. And if a threat intelligence project wasn't available when I needed it, that could be a challenge. And that's part of what led me to go, as you might say, in-house at a company where now I know every single day, my work is always going to be threat intelligence aligned. It's a bit of a difference, but I absolutely benefited from being able to see a lot of different experiences within consulting. And it did mean sometimes I was on projects that I wasn't as excited about, but I learned from that. And now I know that. And that helped me find other projects within consulting that I knew I was going to be excited about. Wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us that context and that perspective. One other question about your undergrad years, Lauren. What kinds of internships, clubs, 
volunteer work or other extracurricular out of the classroom activities were you involved in that in hindsight helped you to realize that you had actually been working on practical skills that were useful to you when you actually started working full time? I went to school in Washington, D.C. And part of the reason I chose D.C. is because I was passionate about politics. And I knew that if I wanted to study politics and international relations, I wanted to be in the place where it happens. And I went to a university where it's extremely pre-professional. A lot of people are interning and working all of the time. And that really fit with my personality. I love class. I love classroom learning, but I'm really somebody who also likes to do things and likes to get out there and be working in the field. So my first internship was my freshman year of college. I mean, I really dove straight in. I interned on the Hill for my congressman. I'm still a Hill nerd. It's probably laughable to people who actually work on the Hill, but I was a classic Hill intern. I was so excited. I got chills when I walked in the building every morning and just saw this amazing history surrounding me and getting to walk by Congress people to get lunch was just unbelievable to me. I mean, I was 18 years old and it was just so exciting. And it was why I came to DC. And it was really a great foundation. I then ended up volunteering on multiple political campaigns and learned a lot there. Talk about a great fit for an extrovert. Many people do not love campaign work because it's either asking for money or knocking on doors. And I love doing both of those things. I had a blast getting to volunteer on different campaigns and getting to talk to people and really learning one-on-one about politics from people that you're standing on their doorstep and they're telling you what they believe. I mean, I learned so much there. And that's really helped me as well in my current work because that ability to just talk to anyone about the issues they care about so core to what happens in the business world. Different teams have really different interests, but being able to convey how your work impacts them and vice versa and really take that in, I think is something that I honed while doing internships and volunteering on campaigns. And then finally, I did work at the US State Department, which again, for me was a dream come true. I was such a nerd about it. You know, I would walk around the State Department just in awe of the fact that they even let me in the building, let alone that I was being paid to work there while I was still in school. And I had an internship. I did not pursue a full-time position while I was interning. I was just enjoying the experience and really learning while there. I wasn't sort of positioning myself for a role. And I will never forget, I was walking into a final and I got a call from a blocked number. A lot of government numbers don't show up on your phone. I said, okay, I better answer this. I don't know who it is. And I answered it and it was not even my former boss. It was somebody else in my office who said, hey, I just heard about a position in one of our related offices. It's not exactly the office you were interning in, but it's related. And they need to hire within the next few weeks for this role. And I think you'd be a really strong fit. And I think you should apply. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And the next day, I think I went in for the interview. It was really in rapid succession and then ended up with a job and worked that job the rest of the time that I was in college. And getting to take classes on diplomacy. And then I'm a cyclist. I'm an avid city cyclist. So then bike from campus down to the State Department, which was under two miles and quite close. And walk in the doors of the State Department and actually get to then work with diplomats was just the most incredible learning experience. And I think really applying what I learned to the field I was interested in made me even more passionate about pursuing a career in this field. Oh, gosh. You know, I covered the State Department for eight years as a journalist. And I know the feeling, the chills that you get. The State Department, for those who haven't been there, is not the most attractive building. (laughs) But just knowing that you're kind of in the center of 
this incredibly important office of this bureaucracy is just a wonderful experience. So two final questions, Lauren. I want to ask you about a time in your professional life when you struggled. You may have faced a particular challenge of some kind. You did mention working in a track that you weren't particularly interested in when you were at Deloitte, but maybe you had a difficult supervisor. You may have been underwater with too much work or had no opportunity for a social life, whatever the case may be. How did you navigate the challenge and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? Some of these moments stand out quite clearly, as I'm sure they do for many people in their career. And there's a certain through line for me of some of the moments I've had that have felt particularly challenging and challenging at a personal level as opposed to just a professional level. So I've had a couple of instances in which I either identified an opportunity for a publication or I supported writing a paper or I helped bring a speaker to our organization that ultimately I didn't end up getting sort of credit for it or wasn't listed as an author on certain papers that I've written or was considered a ghostwriter for something when I actually knew I was the one who did the work and had expected to be recognized for that. And it's something I really struggle with at a really personal level to understand when it's appropriate and necessary to advocate for myself in those situations and when it's just the norm, right? And I think it's also really challenging to disentangle some of the gender and age dynamics there of saying, you know, am I being passed over for this opportunity because I'm young or because I'm a woman? Or do I need to be more direct or more vocal in advocating for my representation in this? And I think that those stand out as some of the most challenging moments in my career because they didn't feel like they just impacted my professional life. They really felt like they impacted my identity and really challenged the ways that I operate and the ways that I work. And so those are some of the moments that I can think back on as being really challenging and feeling like I had to make hard decisions around whether to go and sort of risk some of my social capital to go to higher ups in my organizations to really advocate for myself. And those were hard decisions and moments that I definitely look back on and will always wonder sometimes whether or not I made the right decisions in different scenarios, but I'm still learning as I go and and hoping to help others as well in the industry as I have opportunities for publication or speaking, etc. Was there any backlash that you experienced by going to your supervisor? It's really been situation dependent. I mean, I've had incredible fortune to have great managers and supervisors throughout my career thus far. And I must say that the willingness of some of my managers to really help pull me up with them as they had opportunities is something that I will forever be indebted to them. And I have specific coworkers I can name who have offered me co-publication opportunities or to whom I've applied to be do speaking opportunities with. Even if we didn't end up getting those speaking opportunities, it was the vote of confidence they demonstrated that was really critical. But I will say I've also had opportunities where I did not succeed. There are papers out there on which my name isn't on it that I know I wrote. And that is hard. And I can't say I ever received any blowback, but sometimes I wasn't successful, right, in advocating for what I wanted. And that's just a learning experience that I'll take with me. And it does help to inform who are the people you can look to to help pull you up and who are the people that, you know, maybe you need to be a little more direct with as far as advocating for yourself and for those around you as well. Absolutely. Those are great learning experiences, Lauren. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, to Georgetown and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? 
I would really focus on building and deepening connections in the cohort that I was in. And what I mean by that is, as I've discussed, I loved doing internships on the Hill and working in the State Department. And those are experiences I would not change. However, I think I had this sense in college that being on the student government or being involved in super local on-campus politics was not a good use of time, right? That I was in DC and I could be doing much bigger things. And I think looking back, I would change that and I would get involved with the super, super local on-campus organizations that were making a difference in the direct community I was living in because you get leadership opportunities and you get to know your classmates and your peers. And, And that's another piece of advice someone gave me once that really resonates with me and I think is furthered by a commitment to experiences like that on campus, which is that many people... And it has been my experience that when you need a favor, or you need somebody to help you figure out what job's going to be right for you, you're unlikely to be calling the CEO of your company to ask them that question. You're likely to turn to the person next to you who you get lunch with every day and you consider to be a friend. And that's the person that I feel comfortable going to to say, hey, what's your perspective on this? Where should I be applying? What sorts of roles do you think work for this? And it's often those people at your peer level or really close, maybe one step above you in the sort of hierarchy that can really know you really well and can open those doors. And it doesn't have to be the CEO or the high ranking person in your organization. And so I think really committing to being a leader within your cohort and getting involved on campus in different organizations is just as valuable and will teach you so many things. And I think that looking back, I wish I had done some more of that and had more of a balance between that and sort of the internships that I had and everything where I also learned a great deal. Yeah, the off-campus experiences for sure. I agree 100%, Lauren. Well, I want to thank you so much, Lauren, for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community today. This has been so interesting learning about this really exciting and incredibly dynamic industry. And I have a hunch that you have inspired all kinds of young people to explore building a career in cybersecurity. Well, thank you. And I'd also like to share that if anybody has questions, Andrea referenced, I have a post out there about some ways to get started in the field, but also feel free to reach out to me. I get LinkedIn messages semi-regularly from folks who are interested in breaking into the field, and I'm always happy to have those conversations. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.